Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Doing Well, the Wellbeing Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Blue Ngo, coming to your ears from NARM, Melbourne, Australia. Let's learn together. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Doing Well, the show where we talk about well-being weekly. Each week, we have a very different topic, and this week, we have a very big one. The topic of the day is the orgasm gap, causes and personal and societal solutions. And today, in the virtual studio, I have with me Dr. Laurie Mintz, who is the expert in this area. She's super passionate about what she does. Um, so I'll let her introduce you to uh, herself to you in a little bit. But to start with, um, in case you wonder who she is, she is an author, therapist, and professor whose life's work has been committed to helping people live more authentic, meaningful, joyful, and sexually satisfied lives through the art and science of psychology. It's such a wonderful work that she's doing. And I think we don't talk about this topic enough. In fact, in a lot of locations, countries and continents, this is you know, probably very taboo. So I'm excited to talk to Dr. Laurie about this topic today. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Laurie. How are you today? I am great. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, please tell us a bit more about yourself. You know, your life's work is dedicated to this area. There's got to be a reason why. I love hearing the, the reason why, you know, our guests do the things that they are doing. Yeah. So I am a licensed psychologist. So I see clients in private practice. I'm a certified sex therapist. And I'm a professor at the University of Florida where I teach the psychology of human sexuality to hundreds of students a year. I'm also the author of two books, both aimed at empowering women sexually, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, and the book we're going to focus on a little bit today because it's about the orgasm gap, Becoming Clitorate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It. I was also really honored to do a TED Talk on the same topic. So to answer your question, how did I get so passionate about this topic and about empowering women sexually in general? The brief story is I got my PhD as a psychologist way back in 1987, started teaching, doing, working with clients. And what I realized at some point is because I was very comfortable with the topic of sex, I would ask my clients any issues in this area. And about eight out of 10 times, the client would say, yes, but had you not asked, I wouldn't have told you. And then I realized, wait, I'm asking clients this, but to be really frank, I'd had almost no training on this in graduate school. Psychologists, physicians, we're dealing with people's lives and we don't get training in sexuality. And it just dawned on me like, my gosh, this is really a problem. So I did a really deep dive into um, that area and I immersed myself in it. I ended up writing my first book, ended up teaching a graduate seminar in sex therapy. 
And actually, after my first book came out, I had a little panic, like the scientist in me said, what if I have produced something that's not useful to the world, even though I based it in science, a translation of science? So I then discovered, wow, there's a whole area of the efficacy of self-help. So I had some students run a clinical trial on my book, one, several, found out it was um, useful, helped women. Long story short, then everything I started doing became about sex. I got a job at the University of Florida, moved from Missouri, where I'd been for 21 years, mostly to teach this class that hadn't been taught. And it was in that class that I became passionate about the orgasm gap. It was my students' experiences, their pain around lack of orgasm and the orgasm gap that had me start teaching to that topic. And I would get notes from my students like, thanks for to your class, I'm orgasmic. Thanks to your class, I don't feel broken anymore. And that's when I thought this needs to go way beyond my classroom. We need to really draw attention to and close the cultural orgasm gap and empower women for sexual pleasure. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think um, you, when you said you asked, if you hadn't asked your clients, they wouldn't have told you. I think that is just so true because I think a lot of people are afraid to talk about this topic. And, you know, whenever I find um, a group of girls talking about this topic, I feel so empowered because, you know, it's so important to address the issues and we don't talk about this enough. Um, and we'll, we'll go into the topic very soon. I'm very excited to talk to you about this because I know you're the expert. I'm curious to learn more about this, um, especially since, you know, the orgasm gap is such, um, I think it's probably a new notion to a lot of people, such a new thing. A lot of people don't think about this at all. So we'll address um, a lot of things related to it. We'll talk about how it's related to well-being. But before we do that, let's get to know you a bit better. We have a section called Have You Met Dr. Laurie Mintz? And here we're going to get some of your recommendations. This is my favorite part because I get recommendations from my guest. The first thing I always ask is what is a book you would recommend? And a book that I would recommend, of course, beyond my own, is honestly, it's a book it's very, it's not well known actually at all. It's Sizzling Sex by Michael Castleman. And the reason I recommend that book is he's a great writer and he takes a lot of the science and he makes it very accessible. And what I love about this book is it's written for men. But it's very like it's because to close the orgasm gap, we need women and men. But he writes in such a way that is so science-based and so supportive of equality and compassion and equal relationships in equal relationships. So um, I really love that book, even though it's not very well known. It's one of my favorites. No, oh, that is interesting. I've never heard about that before. So thank you. Second one, what is a movie you would recommend? Oh, a movie that I would recommend that um, that I really love is A Beautiful Life. And now that's one most people have probably <laughs> heard of, but I think that's just an absolutely beautiful, beautiful movie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think it's always good to go back to the classics, you know. Um, and next one, you're on the podcast as a guest now, but which podcast would you recommend to our listeners? Um, 
We do hard things. I love that podcast. We can do hard things. Wonderful. Taking notes on my list so I can have that and listen <laughs> to it later. Um, next question. Who is your famous role model? Or if not a famous person, then who is your personal role model? Oh, well, I am going to go back to also a woman that people might not have heard of. Um, who would actually have two and they're very related, but if I have to stick with one, I am going to say Cher Height. Um, Cher Height um, wrote in the 1970s, The Height Report, which was the first book, the first study that pretty much exposed the fact that women were having bad sex and that most women didn't orgasm from intercourse, and that women were faking, and why it was revolutionary. But what really I want to bring attention to is that she she persevered with this message despite the hate she received. Playboy called it the hate report. She received so much hate mail that she actually had to leave the country and go in hiding. And I don't think enough people know about her story. And I don't think enough people know about how she persevered to get an important message out there, which I am still trying to continue in her legacy. Thankfully, things have changed enough that I wasn't run out of the country. Um, for it. But I would say that she is a role model. And if I can sneak in another, it would be also the late Betty Dodson, who did very, very similar work in in, in empowering um, women sexually. And she wrote the book Sex for One. She was one of the first people to really bring women's masturbation out of the closet, if you will, into the light and um, both of them passed away within the last few years. Mm. Yeah. Based that that we, we lose them. But uh, yeah, glad to hear more about their legacy. I actually haven't heard about them before. So thank you for sharing about their great work. And it's really related to the topic of the day. Um, so I guess, you know, in, in a way we can do more research and um, even look up the things that you mentioned in this episode to learn more about, um, you know, women's sexual empowerment, the orgasm gap and beyond. Um, last question in this part, what is a course you completed that left a really big impact on you? A course that really, really impacted me has nothing to do with sex. It was in graduate school, a course called Existential Psychotherapy. And it was based on the work of Irving Yalom, who basically said, much of the things we don't talk about, but that are core to all human beings that we need to grapple with in order to be well, in order to live good lives, are many things we don't talk about, like our own mortality, facing death. How does it feel to be alone, aloneness? How do we get meaning in life? Um, and so those, he talked about these core concepts that are cut across humans that, um, that, that are very, very impactful to our sense of self, our sense of community, and our well-being. 
Yeah. Wow. What an interesting course. Now I want to do it. <laughs> I want to take that book, too. Yeah. <laughs> the book is still out there. It's called Existential Therapy. Yeah. Um, it's it's about it's very thick, but it's a it's a powerful read. He's got yeah. other books too, but that's yeah. the that's the core. Mm. But it was I was a young person at the time, and I never really I hadn't thought of those concepts. Like, how does my own Certainly now as I age, I think about this course more and more, right? But how does my own awareness of my own mortality affect my day-to-day life? How does how do I create meaning in my life, you know? Um, and you read my intro, which was about creating meaning in my yeah. life. How do I grapple with being alone? How do we all grapple with being alone? So I think they're big, big topics. And it was very impactful for me as a young person to start to grapple with those topics. Yeah, I really love that because you know that is a question that I've been asking people around me quite a bit. And I know it has nothing to do with today's topic, um, but I think it's actually part of our well-being, right? When we talk about meaning and, you know, like finding out what we do in our lives, so tightly related to well-being. It's, it's integrally related to well-being. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of which, now let's talk about our topic and let's talk about well-being. Uh, we briefly touched on, you know, the course that you took that really impacted you and how it's kind of, you know, part of our well-being. But I wonder what you would personally define well-being as a concept. I think well-being is so multifaceted. I would define it as it's, it's a, both in, um, the mind-body, both the mind and the body must be involved for there to be well-being. And I, I don't separate them. I do think there's a massive connection. But um, so I'm not saying one has to be healthy to have well-being or, you know, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that to be well is to be aware to, to be as content and self-aware um, of one's circumstances as possible, to feel good in the world, even and to feel, for some people, it may be a sense of purpose, meaning. For I think it's very subjective. For others, it might be you know, I don't have great meaning in life, say maybe work-wise, but I have great connections with others. So it really is feeling a sense of wellness. And I'm obviously that, but (laughs) I don't want to define it with itself, but it's a feeling of contentment and, um, and a good attitude about one's life circumstances. Um, and, it reminds me if let, let me I can define this with an example if I might. Would that be okay? Yeah, definitely. I spoke on the phone last night to someone who was like an aunt to me my whole life. And she's in her late 80s. She's lost her husband. Um, she recently had the, a great tragedy. She lost a child which is you know an adult child, which I think is one of the worst things that can happen to someone. And so I called her to see, how are you doing? And she said, you know, Lori, I have bad days. I have very bad days. Some days I, I miss, she talked about her son so much. And I, 
I wonder, like, why am I still here if he's gone? She said, but then I think to myself, I have other children. I have grandchildren. I have great grandchildren. I've lived a great life and I'm still living a good life. I'm taking a meditation class this week. I've gotten into chair yoga. Yes, I just moved into an apartment and it's really small because it's, you know, and it's a, it's in a, you know, community for elderly individuals. She said, "So, you know, I've I've had tragedy, I've had pain." She said, "But I'm doing well." So, it's to me wellness then isn't about she doesn't feel that good physically she's had tragedy but wellness is about her she's aware of who she is and what she's been through and she's continuing to work on herself and her attitude so i would say she exhibits well-being even though someone might look at her right with her walker and her tragedies that just happen and think she's not so I think well-being comes from within and what we do with our life and our circumstances. And it's so much about our attitude. Sorry yeah. if that was long-winded, but no, not <laughs> at all. captures it for me. Yeah. No, I really love it because what, what you talked about covers so many different facets of our lives. And, you know, a, a part of being on this show for me is being really vulnerable and talking about my own experiences. And I think having a sense of well-being doesn't mean that you feel great all the time. And I totally agree with you. Things might happen in our lives. You know, the person that you just talked about um, has something really tough happen to her. Um at the same time, each of us in our lives might have our own challenges. You know, like I talked to my friend who's really young and her challenge at the moment is feeling overwhelmed because she doesn't know where to start. And she knows she used to be really good academically and now she's struggling. And to her, it's like, you know, she had a breakdown one day, but then the next uh, the next few days she worked through that and she felt okay again. And she appreciated what she had because she did say, you know, I have a great life. My parents are great. My parents are caring. They support my education. They sent me here. They pay for everything. And I don't have to worry about money. The only problem I have now is just underperforming academically. And uh, I hear people's problems and I start to take them on and, you know, like kind of feel the emotions. And that's why I got overwhelmed. Um, but then a few days later, she said, you know, I, I've processed it. You know, I think it's it's OK. It's all good now. It was just that yeah. moment. So, you yeah, know, it's had, so interesting to hear. She had the perspective. She had the resilience. Yeah. And I think what helped, I don't know if this is true of your friend, but I think what often helps with wellness is letting oneself actually feel those feelings. Yeah. But to really go there, to release them, to... Yeah to not hold back the feelings and think we can't have them. We can't yeah. feel angry. We can't feel sad. We can't feel overwhelmed like your friend. Yeah. What we what we often avoid is what gets us. Yeah. And so I love that your friend Ooh. said, I feel lousy today. And that helped her yeah. feel better the next day. Yeah, totally. And yeah, and another thing, because we're going to address some misconceptions, I'm just going to say I totally agree with that. A lot of the times we try to hide these things because it's not pretty and we, we, need, we need to be strong. You know, we need to show that we are strong or it's, life is great to others. 
I haven't done that. I've just been really honest with everyone around me. I'm just like, I don't know what's going on, but personally, something's wrong. And this is tying straight back to what you said earlier about meaning and the course that really impacted you because I have been really burnt out. I've talked about this on this show for quite some time. And burnout here is not just because of work, but because of life, you know, because of a lot of things. And I don't feel the joy in anything anymore. For a really long time, I just struggled to find out what I love. And, you know, like I, I love the work that I do and I started for a reason, but somewhere along the, the way, I just kind of lost sight of what I'm doing. So I'm enjoying this conversation with you. You know, I'm loving what we're talking about today. And in this moment is great, but I cannot guarantee that I walk out of this room feeling the same energy that I'm going to feel right now because it's, you know, part of recovery. So I'm allowing myself to feel whatever it is that I'm feeling, you know, maybe a little meh, but it'll be okay. And, um, just prioritizing rest, you know, it's so important to allow myself to be okay with not being okay and just enjoy doing whatever I feel like doing and just take the time to relax. Yeah, I'm really honored that you share that with me. And I'm really glad that you're like acknowledging your burnout and facing it and allowing yourself to rest. Because so many times, I think people in general, and, you know, I think high achieving women in specific, there's even a book by Emily Nagowski called Burnout. I don't yes, know if I love that book. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it's, and she's very wise. And I think a lot of times we don't take the time to rest. We, we just push through, push through. And um, it's really, really important that we take the time to rest, to talk about our feelings, to honor our feelings as well. And so I'm really sorry that you're feeling that way, but I, I do wish you like, you know, recovery, recovery Thank time. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Me too. I hope so too. It, it's going to take some time. I know that because um, I've done some research and I think it takes roughly six months to a year for you to fully recover from it. Um, and so I think the key for me right now is just to understand that I should not add more stress to my life because I have this productivity anxiety where I'm like, I need to do more. Why am I not doing more? People are doing so much. I used to do so much, but I'm like, no, 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 Lou, calm down. It's fine. This season in your life is called rest and relax and just recharge. Find out what you love again. It's fine. Don't do anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, let me share something with you. A supervisor once shared with me that really impacted me. Yeah. He said, um, we're called human beings, not human doings. Yeah. And, um, and maybe you've heard that before, but it really struck me. And he said, like, there's a teeter-totter, right? Like, like of being and doing. And he said to me, you're way out of whack, Lori. Your doing is way up here. It's way out of whack. You know, you're not being enough and you have to get back to, to equilibrium. And I've had periods of my life where I was burned out to times where I honored it and times where I just tried to push through. And I tell you the pushing through made it a lot worse. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And that is one of the biggest misconceptions about well-being, I think. It's like you have to work on it hard to be well. But sometimes, no, it's actually the complete opposite. 
And I think that's, to me, it's like one of the biggest misconceptions because of what I've noticed so far. Uh, but I wonder what you think to be some of the biggest misconceptions about well-being, maybe something that we haven't addressed yet. Yeah, I think one of the biggest conceptions of well-being is that it's, it, is a, it is a constant state of happiness that I think most people, which is why I answered the way I did, that well-being means I'm happy, I'm healthy, physically and mentally, you know, and I think well-being isn't necessarily, you can be well, like, honestly, sitting here talking to you, you're telling me you're burned out, and I would see you as a well person. Why? Because you're aware of it. Yeah. You're you're honoring it, you're re- resting. So I think that's a big misconception about well-being. Um, and I think you got to the other one too, that well-being means doing. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be productive and I'm gonna exercise and I'm gonna, you know, do this, that, the other. And sometimes well-being means being in stillness. Sometimes well-being means not producing not fighting through. I mean, I do think, I mean, I cannot argue with the fact that well-being is absolutely enhanced by things like eight hours or seven, eight hours of sleep a night, by physical exercise, by meditation. Um, But I have seen some people work so hard on well-being that they make it another chore. Wow, that hits really hard. That is such a great point. I don't know what to say, but I, I just I just have to kind of take that all in because it hits it hits me really hard. That was like literally me last year, which is why I burnt out because I was like, let's do this and that and, and here, go here, go there, do more, you know, and just, uh, you know, take on everything. And guess what? <laughs> it did not help. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm sorry you went through that, and I'm so glad that you that you honored that. Yeah. Thank you. It's something that I have to learn, and I think we all go through that. And I know, you know, I just I'm so passionate about well being. I can talk about this topic for a long, long time, but I know we're not here to talk about just well-being because we're here to talk about the orgasm gap. So let's head there. Um, and <laughs> I'm excited to learn about this topic from you because uh, I'll be real, I've never um, really talked about this specific topic with my friends. Obviously, we, you know, in the girl group, we'll probably talk about sex and orgasm and things like that. But the orgasm gap is a new thing. So to kind of help our audience to understand this topic, how would you define the orgasm gap? So the orgasm gap is the consistent finding in the psychological research literature that when cisgender women, so people born with a vagina, people identified as female at birth, have sex with cisgender men, the women are having way fewer orgasms than the men are. So let me highlight this with some statistics, if I might Um, In one study, 39% of women versus 91% of men said they usually orgasm during a sexual encounter. Now, that study didn't ask the type of sex, but there's been a lot of studies since then. And what we find is the gap is largest in first-time hookup sex. Like um, one study found 
55% of men versus 10% of women. It gets smaller in subsequent hookups, gets smaller in friends with benefits. It gets the smallest in relationships, but it never closes altogether. That even in relationships, for example, one study found that 85% of men versus 65% of women said they, they had an orgasm at their last instance of relationship sex. Now, I might be going beyond your question, but some people will say it's because women's orgasms are difficult or elusive. Our bodies are hard. Two other gaps make it clear this is a cultural problem, not a body problem. When women are alone, 95% reach orgasm easily and within minutes, four minutes to be exact, same amount of time as when men pleasure themselves. And when women have sex with other women, they have more orgasms than with men. The most striking study to date was a study of bisexual women. So women who were hooking up with men and women. So same woman, same body. When they hooked up for the first time with women, they orgasmed first time hookup sex 64% of the time. Same woman, when they hooked up the first time with men, 7% of the time. Oh my God. Yeah. So what does that tell us, right? It tells us that the problem is not our bodies. The problem is, and I'm not blaming men either. I've been married to the same man for 37 years. I, I, people think I'm anti-men. I am not. This is not a male problem. This is a cultural problem. This, yeah. is, this problem is about the way we do heterosexual sex and our cultural ignorance of women's most reliable routes to orgasm. Mm. Wow, that is a very striking statistic. Yes. I'm I'm shook to my core, and uh, <laughs> yeah, never never thought I would hear that because when you say sixty something percent, and then you go straight to seven percent, I was like seventeen? No, seven. I was like, whoa, no, seven. seven. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I thought you were gonna go to seventeen. No, seven. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a massive gap. So you know, it's a pretty big deal in the sense that we're talking about well-being and, you know, our sexual well-being, sexual self is very important. And there's a big gap. And we're talking about well-being in general. And I know we're talking about the orgasm gap. So women are more affected. Um, but I wonder if this orgasm gap affects both men and women's well-being. Absolutely. 100%. And let me say that the, the a, a correlation in the literature or even causation, we can say there's been enough studies yep. that sexual health is highly related and predictive of sexual satisfaction is predictive of relationship satisfaction. Sexual satisfaction is predictive of overall life satisfaction and relationship satisfaction. So we can easily say why. Sure, it would affect women. We're less satisfied, so we're, we might be less life and relationship satisfied. But when we look at the root cause of the orgasm gap, it's, I mean, there's so many, but a lot of it is this cultural idea that women should orgasm the same way men do through intercourse. Very few do without clitoral stimulation. But 
men are duped by this as much as women. You know, you look at any movie or, you know, the woman is having a fast and fabulous orgasm from intercourse alone. And so when a man doesn't, quote, give a woman an orgasm that way, he often feels less manly, incompetent. And, you know, there's all these myths about he should have a big penis, he should thrust hard, he should last long. And there's even been studies that show that men's sense of self-worth is related to, quote, making a woman orgasm. And so, you know, they're struggling with this as well. And the truth would set everybody free. Yeah. Wow. That is so eye-opening. And I think it's great to acknowledge both sides of the story, right? Because earlier you were saying a lot of people think you're men haters and you're definitely not. And I think that is so true. It's kind of similar to the fact that we talk about feminism, not because we hate men, but because we just want equality. It should just work for both sides. Um, So you said we should know the truth and the truth will set us free. What is that truth? And, you know, the question is uh, definitely surrounded around societal norms and societal factors that affect us. Um, and you did mention that before, you know, this is something that has been ingrained in our heads and our brains for so long. So what yes. are some of the key issues and what is the truth? Okay, there's so many sexual truths we don't know about, but the okay. biggest one that is affecting the orgasm gap, it's not the only one, and I'll talk about a couple others. The idea that Cher Height tried to expose and got run out of town for is that most women do not orgasm from intercourse alone. Now, if anybody's listening to this and you're a woman who does orgasm that way, I am not intending to make you feel bad at all. Because what I want to say is however you experience pleasure in orgasm is fine. It's perfect. Um, But the reason I'm focusing here is because we know that depending on the way the question is worded or the study, only 18% about anywhere from 25 to 18% of women orgasm from thrusting alone. And in research I've conducted, only 4% of women say thrusting alone is their most reliable route to orgasm. 4%. The other 96 need clitoral stimulation, either alone or coupled with penetration. The clitoris, not the vagina, is the equivalent of the penis. And yet, think about how deeply ingrained this is in our culture. We use, we call women's entire genitals a vagina. That's one part. It's the part where penises go in, babies come out. We're erasing the part of ourselves that give us the most pleasure when we use that word. We use the word sex and intercourse as if they were one and the same. When intercourse is men's, not women's most reliable route to orgasm, we use the word foreplay, eh, just to lead up to the main event instead of it being considered equally sex. So, um, I think I got off and lost your question. I must say, um, I get a little passionate and I lost your question. No, I love it. No, you you did lose the question a little bit, but I love that you just said that, uh, you know, you address one of the the biggest truths that we don't talk about. Uh, My question was more about, you know, the societal norms and social cultural factors. So it's more on the bigger scale, but we're talking about uh, something that is uh, actually quite important because we don't know about this or we don't address this. 
it's it's a, a pretty big misconception that everyone has, I would say. Right. So the misconception that the women should orgasm from intercourse or it's the be- ideal type. So that's one. Yeah. Another misconception that contributes to this is that, and Emily Nagowski talks about this in her book, Come As You Are, a lot, that if we're excited, we'll be lubricated. If we're lubricated, it means we're excited. Women have something called arousal non-concordance. Our brains might feel interested, our genitals don't, or vice versa. So the idea that we should lubricate, many women don't lubricate naturally, and store-bought lube is your best friend sexually, especially for penetrative activities. Another misconception, oh, this I could talk about for hours, is that vibrators replace men, they're addictive, they desensitize your clitoris. None of that is true. Um, They are not addictive. I mean, do carpenters get addicted to power tools? No, they just get the job done faster. Um, They don't desensitize your clit. In fact, there's some research, they make you more sensitive Um, They don't replace men. They don't cuddle. They don't kiss. And even the fact we call them sex toys, there was an article that just came out in a medical journal saying, we need to call these medical devices Mm. because they are empirically supported. Many women, especially older women, but many, many women, women with diabetes, women in general, many women don't orgasm unless they use a vibrator. And why is that? We actually have these things called pessinian corpuscles on our skin. They, they respond to vibration. Our genitals are full of them, penises and, um, and vulvas. So Oh, I could go on and on about misconceptions, but let me stop there. (laughs) No, we're going great. I think those are really, really good things to address because I think at the end of the day, if we're talking about the societal norms and social cultural factors that contribute to this disparity uh, in which we call the orgasm gap, it's because of those misconceptions that uh, don't get stopped from spreading or addressed. Um, And I think I I talked to a guest not long ago about um, uh, our sexual self and sexual empowerment. And one of the biggest things that we talked about back then, and I think it applies to this conversation too, is how we do sexual education. And, Mm -hmm. you know, also you said, you know, like movies portray things like this, books portray things like that. Um, And a, a lot of people watch porn. That might be another thing that, you know, just makes all of this even more complicated and cause even more misconceptions. So what would be some of the societal solutions that we can address, can do to address this gap? Well, first of all, sex education is the number one. Um, We have a terrible sex education system. We tell young people, don't have sex, you'll get pregnant and die and get diseases. And if we do give sex education, we don't talk about consent. We don't talk about pleasure. It's like people, it's like it's a secret in sex ed that sex is pleasurable. And we certainly don't talk about the clitoris. As, as Peggy Orenstein said in her book, Girls and Sex, the boys are taken in one room and they're told about ejaculation. The girls are taken in another and told about their periods. Those are different things. One's sexual, one is not. It's like the clitoris doesn't even exist. And you mentioned porn. I, I think porn is here to stay, and we could get into the research on if it's helpful, it's harmful. 
the one thing we know about porn that is harmful is when people use it as sex education. And in the absence of scientifically accurate sex positive sex ed, our young people are getting their sex education from porn. And when I teach my class, I do these anonymous polls. You know, I ask them questions they can answer. In in my last class, about 43% of women and 54% of men said that they had assumed what they saw in porn was real and attempted to mimic it in real sex. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yes. That's insane. Yes. And some of the things we see in porn would be very, very harmful and are harmful in real sex. And my students tell me stories. Um, A big one that's going on right now, there's a lot of uh, choking that goes on in porn, strangulation. And I've had almost 70% of my students tell me that a man had tried to do that with them without consent because they saw it in porn or pulled their hair or been rough with them. And I'm not saying that there aren't people that don't enjoy those activities, but those activities need discussion and conversation and consent and negotiated boundaries. So in my ideal world, we would have sex ed that would also include porn literacy. Mm. We don't put people in front of a TV to learn to drive and have them watch a Fast and Furious movie. (laughs) But that's what we're doing with sex. Yeah. I love that analogy. (laughs) I love Fast and Furious. I love anything to do with cars. And you said that. I'm like, yeah, that's so funny. Uh, I love that. I think it's so true because, you know, I remember, uh, and for context, I have to say this every time I'm on the show because you know, the show is in Australia. It might be, there might be a misconception that I'm Australian. I'm not. Um, I'm from Vietnam. And where we, where I was born, sex ed is this thing where kids would get together in a really big hall. There'll be a projector or two, and then there'll be condoms flying around, you know, like, here, here you go, take them home. Um, and everyone will start laughing about whatever get, is getting taught. It's not serious. It's not... Uh, scientific enough and also they don't ever talk about why why are we talking about these things why do we need to know about it you know it it never started there it's just like okay here's something that's super uncomfortable but let's talk about it right right yeah Yeah. no context no seriousness um and you know um the netherlands i don't know if you know much about their sex ed but it starts in kindergarten it goes wow. all the way through high school. It's kind of like math, right? You learn one plus one equals two in yeah. first grade. And maybe by, you know, your senior year, you're doing algebra. And yeah. they treat their sex ed like that. They label the body parts, including the clitoris in, you know, kindergarten. Um, and there's also research that if you teach children actual names, they'll be more likely to report sexual abuse if it occurs. Yep. And then by high school, they're talking about orgasm, consent, pleasure. Yeah. Like it gets increasingly sophisticated. And guess what? They have the small, way smaller orgasm gap. Hmm. Consent is such an important thing. And yeah, we don't talk about that enough. I, I only started noticing that when I was in Australia. So, you know, my first year here, I remember going to u- my uni and the different unis and um, there's a sticker going around. It's consent matters. 
And, you know, for the first time in my life, I started to understand what that means in actuality and how important it is because we don't talk about it in Vietnam. Mm. I don't know about the educational system right now because, you know, it's been so, so long since I last went to school. Um, but yeah, the, the schools, we never talked about it. When I went to uni doing my undergrad almost 10 years ago, we never talked about it either. So it's pretty insane. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it is. Yeah, it's pretty sad too. So I think the solution is great, but um, it, it starts, it doesn't start with us only, I guess, in in this sense, because, you know, educate the education system. I don't know how to how to even start talking about that. It's a big topic in itself. But what I do know is we can start talking about this more with, you know, our people, our circles, our friends, family. I know for a fact that my family doesn't talk about it at all because to them it's like, oh, we don't talk about sex in this household. It's awkward. It's taboo. Right. Right. So I do think okay. sex ed is the solution, but I'm sad to say I don't think we're going to get there in our lifetime. So I agree with you. I think it's up to us. So how do we do that? Next time you're with a group of your friends, you know, or anyone listening, and you see a movie and the woman's having this fast and fabulous orgasm from intercourse alone, before they have any conversation, no consent, say something. Say, you know, that's really unrealistic. Like, let's talk about this. Like, you know, start talking about it as if you, you know, calling out these false images and, and talking. And then as if, if, and when we, you know, people who are aware of this become parents, you know, change it with your own children. So, yeah. you know, we don't, if we wait around for sex ed, this, these problems will never change. So I, I agree with you. It's really important to just have conversations, which is why I'm so glad you're, invited me to have this conversation. Yeah. Well, at least you've enlightened one person, two people today, <laughs> uh, myself and Aiden in the studio. We're listening attentively. Yeah, I, I I think it's a great topic to talk about. Never got this education before. So now I'm directly getting this from you and hopefully our audience would learn at least a new thing or two from today. Um, I think another thing is, you know, the... The fact that we are not talking about it enough, but also the self-education, because one of the things that we mentioned briefly earlier was how a lot of uh, people are experiencing, you know, being choked without consent and things like that, because these men watch porn and they just apply that straight away without, you know, any thinking. Um, and, and I think the self-awareness part is important here because we cannot change if we don't want to change. Genuinely. Right. So um, in, in the sense of self-education, where do you think we can start? I know this is not on the agenda, but I'm really curious to know. Well, I think people have to know that if both parties aren't in consenting, if both parties aren't enjoying themselves, then it's it's not a good experience. It's a And so there's so many resources out there, you know, for women and men to educate themselves. There's there's some terrible people, right, on TikTok and Instagram telling lies, but follow really true, educated, sex-positive people. Read books. Um, my, I'm going to tell you my book, Becoming Cliterate, has a 
chapter written just for men. And the rest, it summarizes all this written for men, and most of it's written for women. And I talked about bibliotherapy earlier. There was a study published in a scientific journal showing that women who read my book have more orgasms, better body image, better communication, um, less sexual pain, more pleasure. And men who read it become better communicators, more clear about women's pleasure, and they feel better about themselves too. So if you're hearing this conversation, and my book's not the only one, it's just the only one I know about research on, right? Um, And too many books are out there without research, but educate yourself. Ian Kerner has a great book called She Comes First. Um, Now it's more of an oral sex how-to manual, but it gives very good information. Um, Emily Nagowski's books, like there are really, there's great books out there written by sexologists. Get them, read them, do your homework, educate yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I think we, we should definitely think about this more and read more on this topic because I know for a fact that I don't, you know, personally, so I have to admit I'm going to have to read more on this topic. It's kind of scary sometimes as well, you know, because you're like, oh, I'm going to face the truth. Oh my gosh, it's going to be scary. But yeah, very important. I think if if we could reframe that is it's even scarier to operate on false assumptions. Exactly. I know yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. It's so easy to think, uh, you know, in black and white, right? It's just like, oh, you know, that's scary. But actually, right. no, no, it's not. It's, it's like empowering. you said, yeah, like you said, it's empowering and it's important for you to know because how are you supposed to do life without knowing all this stuff? Well, you can figure it out on the go, but chances are you're going to, you know, make some assumptions along the way and that's not going to be helpful. So it's better to educate ourselves. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Going back to that fast and furious metaphor. I mean, if we all learn to drive like that, there'd be a lot of fatalities, right? And that's what we're doing with sex. There are sexual fatalities happening, bad sex. And because we're educating ourselves with entertainment instead of science. Mm, I really love that. That's exactly why our shows are about, you know, we have, uh, I I know this is off topic, but we have all these shows, especially while being science, we invite experts like you because we want to really delve into the science side of it. Um, and we can make the conversation fun so it's easier for our audience to understand. But at the end of the day, we have to face the truth. And a lot of that is the hard things that you've been talking about. And I really adore you for doing the work that you're doing, because not a lot of people, you know, show up and talk about sex education the way that you do. Um, oh, thank you. Very honest to the point. I really love it. I um, just want to say that. But uh, one of the other things I want to ask is the psychological factors that can, you know, influence orgasm and pleasure. And this probably applies to both men and women. Um, So I wonder what they are, how they can differ between men and women, or, you know, even in other genders, because we have a wide spectrum of genders nowadays. And uh, let's try to be as inclusive as we can. Yes. And I appreciate that. And I do want to say that when I talk about the orgasm gap, I use the terms women and men broadly, because that's where the research is. We don't yet know like what's happening. There's not enough research to know what happens when a, you know, not a non-binary person is getting it on with a cisgender person or another non-binary person. So that's why I've been talking in the binary, but, you know, um, 
I really appreciate you bringing that up. So psychological factors that come up are body image issues, and this affects women, men, non-binary folks, um, trans individuals, especially sometimes when there's gender dysphoria. But the bottom line is it is absolutely impossible to experience sexual pleasure when we're in our head focused on, ooh, do I look okay? Do I smell okay? I don't like this body part. You To have an orgasm requires focusing, immersing in your body. And, and I'll, I can tell you, it is impossible to orgasm while you're holding your stomach. And I literally wasted four years of college trying. Um, <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't happen. If you're sitting there thinking, how do I look? You're not going to have an orgasm. And women have a lot in, of body concerns. People with penises think it's too small, you know, et cetera. So that cuts across everybody. And we're also seeing an upsurge in genital self-consciousness among people with vulvas, thinking like their lips are too big. I want to tell people it's completely normal to have one inner lip stick out from the other, the outside or one bigger than the other. Also general distractions, like I can't tell you how many people are in the middle of sex and be like, oh, I forgot to answer that email. Like I forgot to, um, you know, do this or that. Like it's the same thing, whether you're focused yeah. on a task you forgot to do or how your body looks bad, you're not going to orgasm. So getting out of your head and into your body is a real difficult one for most. And the antidote to that is mindfulness, putting your mind and body in the same place. And I'm, I'm, you know, there's so much research about the benefits of mindfulness. Um, but one that doesn't get talked about enough is it's, it's an empirically supported, scientifically supported technique to help with sexual pleasure. And there's a great book called The Better Sex Through Mindfulness by Lori Brado. She's the one who's responsible for taking mindfulness and applying it to the sexual realm. Um, so that's a big one, being in your head. Another is like self-shame and self-evaluation, like slut shaming, thinking, you know, you're having sex too early or, you know, that kind of thing. Or for those people raised in purity culture, that can really wreak havoc. So there's many depression, anxiety, um, lack of sleep. All of those things are going to impact sexual wellness. Wow. So many things we didn't think about. I was kind of laughing when you said, you know, oh, I haven't answered that email in the middle of sex. I was like, yep, I'm it sure is. that I'm sure that happens. Absolutely. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, we have, and that, and, and some people are too anxious. They can't really do mindfulness. So fantasy is another way to get out of your head. And there's also misconceptions about fantasy. Like people are so ashamed of their sexual fantasies, but there was a great book by Justin Lee Miller called tell me what you want. He doc, he studied thousands of people and guess what? Most of us have pretty similar fantasies and fantasy is different than reality. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important that um, 
couples, regardless of their genders, and this is me trying to be as inclusive as possible, understand what you just talked about because there are so many different factors. And sometimes it's not about the other person involved. It's because you're in your head, right? So what I'm trying to say is when it comes to sexual pleasure, it's both people. But then when a person is kind of off, the other person can start thinking, oh, is it because of me? But then maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's actually just the other person. They're dealing with stuff of their own. And that's why it's so important that they communicate better and understand this. So both need to understand the perspectives of what might happen and what can happen. But at the same time, they need to communicate. However, it's kind of hard. So how should, yes. you know, how should couples go about communicating about this topic? Yeah, I, I'm fond of saying something that a client once said to me after I taught her communication skills. She said, communication is the bedrock to make your bed rock. Oh, um, I love that. Yeah. And, and honestly, what you're bringing up is why I have an entire chapter on communication in both of my books is because you need... First of all, sexual communication is just a subset of good general communication. So the first step is learning to communicate well about your general needs. What are they? Get in touch with yourself. Be able to say them with statements. I want, I need. Don't ask questions that aren't really questions. Like, do you ever ask someone, like, where do you want to go to dinner? They say a place and then you're, they're like, you're like, no, not that. Because it wasn't really a question. It was a statement. I want this. And even the question, do you want to have sex? It's never a question. The other person's never just curious. They either want to or they hope you don't want to because they don't. Right. So, so then we need to learn to communicate outside of the bedroom. I call them kitchen table sex talks. Uh, you talk about it outside of sex. Sex therapists say don't solve problems in the bedroom. Mm. Talk about sex before sex. Get consent. Yep. Talk about what you're going to do. Talk during sex. You can communicate verbally and non-verbally during sex. And then talking after. How was that for you? Could it have been better? Like, how could it have been better? So sex, sexual communication should be interwoven through one's life and, and people don't know this. Wow. That is so interesting. I love that because yeah, I, I do know for a fact that it's extremely hard to be vulnerable and talk about things in the bedroom, uh, even outside the bedroom. Right. And this applies to all of us. I mean, maybe some people are more comfortable because of the way that they were brought up because of, you know, the experience that they've had in life so far. But I think for most of us, it's still sort of awkward to talk about. Um, I don't know about you, Laurie, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about the practice part where we get some tips from you um, specifically. Uh, but I guess it's it's just a matter of understanding the gap is there and we don't talk about the causes enough. And so I think once we start having these conversations about what actually happens and why the gaps is there, um, we can understand both perspectives. Because like you said, this applies to both men and women. And of course, the term is used loosely because we haven't been able to address um, you know, other genders. But I would say it's been really enlightening to learn about, you know, like, uh, what we can do as a society, what we can do from our own perspective. Um, and I think it starts with self-education, once again, very important. Um, it starts with talking about it more often with your friends, your family, your circles, especially your partner, if you have one. 
Um, and even if you don't and you just engage in casual sex, it's even more important to talk about it. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think it's been really eye-opening for me personally. I have to do a lot more reading on this topic because, I, as I said, I was not educated in this area the way that I would have loved to be educated in. Um, and uh, I know for a fact that a lot of my friends are hesitant to talk about it too. So this opens a door to a lot more mm. conversations and it'll be amazing. Uh, but let's be a bit more practical now. We've covered the theory. You know, We've talked a lot about um, the whys and the hows. Um, so I want to ask you, and this can be personal, and this can, or this can be something you recommend to others. Which practice would you employ to address and bridge this orgasm gap? Could be in your personal life, or could be you know with your clients or people you work with. Well, I, you know, actually, my book is a combination of cultural analysis: why do we have the orgasm gap, and self-help to empower people with vulvas to orgasm. So I'm going to focus there. Um, <laughs> the first thing is know what you have, you know, um, people with penises can hold them, see them when they pee. We need concerted effort. So get a diagram of a vulva and then take a mirror, identify your parts, find your inner lips, find your clitoral hood, know what you have. That's step one. And know that all vulvas are beautiful. They come in all shapes and sizes and they're all beautiful, okay? Then the next step is to work on your mind. Work on getting rid of those sex-negative, deeply ingrained thoughts like sex is dirty, we don't talk about it, and substitute the thoughts, sex is beautiful, let's talk about it. Then work on mindfulness. Work on it in daily life and then apply it to the bedroom. And no. Med med meditation is great, but you don't have to meditate to learn mindfulness. I love the metaphor of a roller coaster. If you've ever been on a roller coaster, when you get on, you might be like, if you're me, like, oh, why did I do this? I hope it doesn't get stuck. Your mind's going bananas. But then when you start flying downhill, you're just in your body. You're screaming, but you're in your body. That's mindfulness. So how do we practice it in daily life? I challenge everyone. The next time you're brushing your teeth, 60 seconds, 30 seconds, really focus on the feeling of the toothbrush in your mouth, the sensation of the toothpaste, same with the time you're washing your hands. And know that your mind will wander a billion times. In 30 seconds, it might go very a lot. But the key is not to have your mind not wander. It's to go, oh, there she goes again. Come on back here. Come back to my body. You can practice mindfulness in your daily life, then apply it to sex. Then the next step is masturbation. Take the time. Use your hands, a vibrator, lubricant. Find out what works for you because everybody needs something different. Then the next step is a lot of people stop there. They know what they want, especially people with vulvas. But then they don't go to the next step to transfer that to partner sex. And the most essential step to orgasming with a partner is getting the same type of stimulation we get alone. So many times people with vulvas, they know what to do alone, but they then they don't they let it go during sex with a partner. 
So use your communication skills to talk about it, to say what you want, to do it yourself. It's no less sex if you have to touch yourself while the partner is there. So use your, and then let's all change the sexual scripts in terms of heterosexual sex. No more foreplay just to get her ready, intercourse, sex over. Sex is not a staircase where we climb it to a goal. Um, even though I'm talking about orgasming, the goal-oriented sex is less likely to be pleasurable. So immerse in the sensation, take turns pleasuring one another. That's one of the reasons lesbian sex is more orgasmic. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So much to practice, you know, and yeah. I think it it's going to take some time for all of us to go through this step by step. And for a lot of women, I think this is going to be very empowering because I guess um, not all of us know that we have this power. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a lot of like uh, research and um, even just watching videos from random women talking about sex to allow me to know, oh, you know what? It's actually very empowering. I don't have to be ashamed to talk about it or experience it myself. You know, and yeah, um, I think one more thing that I am keen to hear from you is when we get, when we have all of these different practices, you know, there, there will obviously be roadblocks. What are some of the roadblocks we might need to look out for and how can we address them? Um, And this probably applies specifically to the women because we're talking about them. Thinking that you're too much. I've heard, had so many women tell me, oh, I think it would be pushy to ask for clitoral stimulation. I'm like, Why? He's not saying it's pushy to ask for his penis to be stimulated. It's an analogous organ. So you're not too much. You're not pushy. You have a right to find sexual um, pleasure. That would be something I'd really want to say. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Um, before we wrap up this topic, is there anything else you would like to share with us? Is there anything that we haven't been cover- able to cover yet? There is one thing, and it doesn't have to do with the orgasm gap, but it has to do with sex. It has to do with sexual desire. And I think if a lot more people knew this, we'd have a lot happier couples. Um, And that is, um, people think of sexual desire as being horny, right? Like, which is, you know, actually being horny is the beginning of arousal, genital tingling, lubrication, et cetera. And a lot of people say, oh, I was really horny in the beginning of a relationship. And then it went away. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with the relationship. And in fact, what we know is there's something called the limerence phase. It's the can't keep your hands off of each other, very horny phase of an early relationship. That is normative for that feeling to go away in six months to two years. And especially under stress and especially with um, people who identify as women. And as we age, a lot of us stop feeling horny. We stop feeling spontaneously horny. But what people then they say, oh, something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with the relationship. They often stop having sex. But what people don't know is there's something called responsive desire, which is I might not be horny, but I'm open in my mind to the idea of sex for mm. a variety of reasons. I'm it's it's it'll be good when it gets going. I know I'll sleep better. I know I'll feel, you know, better about my relationship. 
So a lot of people don't know this. And if they did, what they could do is use their responsive desire to have sexual encounters. And I call it reversing the equation, have sex to get horny rather than waiting to be horny to have sex, especially in the context of a long-term relationship. And I strongly suggest scheduling sexual encounters. People go, oh, that's so unromantic. <laughs> you know, so don't call it scheduled sex. Call it a tryst, a planned meeting between lovers. And then you can use your responsive desire to take you there. And while we've talked about the orgasm gap, and that's a problem, lack of orgasm that really plagues women and uh, people evolve as their whole life, but mostly a lot of it's in the 18 to 35 year old range, women 35 and up, their number one concern is low desire. And so, and that was the topic of my first book, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. So since we didn't talk about it, I think that the idea of desire and scheduled sex and responsive desire are really important. The last thing I'll say is we need to to use that technique. We need to debunk the idea of spontaneous sex, another myth. Most sex is not spontaneous. I often say to my students, when you go out at night to the bar, you take a shower, you put on whatever outfit you think you're cutest in, you do all these things, you flirt all night and, oh my gosh, the night ended in sex. That's not spontaneous. That's well orchestrated. And once people <laughs> face the fact that it was never spontaneous, it yeah. opens the door to scheduled sex and using responsive desire. Mm, that is such an interesting one. Good one. Thank you. I really love You're that. Welcome. Yeah. Uh, so that's it. We've wrapped up the topic with on a high note. I think that's a that's a really fun thing to think about. The the next time you are thinking, oh yeah, I'm not scheduling sex, you are probably doing that, orchestrating it. Um, but let's close with your open mic. I know you're super passionate about this topic. I wouldn't be surprised if you mentioned something else uh, related to the orgasm gap or sex or sexual education, uh, but the floor is yours. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a completely different topic. So it's not even about sex, but it's, you gave me the open mic. So it, I hope this is okay, but something I've been thinking about a lot lately is quality and it relates to well-being, is quality of life, is our our right to choose to die. Um, and I know that may offend some people, um, and I certainly hope not, but I've had some experiences of late with um, some friends and, and such who really became too ill and they didn't want to be alive anymore. They were in agony, they were in pain and there was no way out. Um, at least in, in, in the U S you know? Um, and so, you know, it, I think a lot about this because when our dogs are in agony and we know there's no relief, we, we take them out of their agony and, you know, I'll be very personal. My mother died and she died a long, tortured death. And she asked the doctors, can't you end this? And they said no. And so she, and, and so that's something that I've been passionate about and thinking about a lot lately. 
is why can't we sometimes treat people with the dignity we treat our animals when they're suffering very deeply and there's there's no um the end is near anyway yeah i think um that is that is definitely a another big topic in itself and you know one of the books that i read um not long ago i think it's the it's a series me before you uh book mm-hmm. i'm not sure if our audience is familiar with that but yeah it, it talks about that because um the main character suffers so much that he just wanted to end his life and uh it it obviously really hurt uh the people around him but you know everyone understood that it was for the best because he was in agony every single day and he was not you know himself anymore um so i think you're right it's like it's a matter of choice and allowing people to to choose what they would like um when especially when it's towards the end of their journey and they feel like there's just no more to that journey and there's you know, it no could more be well-being there's, yeah, there's no there. more well-being could be at the beginning of something else and you know it it could actually you know it, it definitely would hurt uh, the people around them at that particular period but um you know moving forward it might actually help to re- exactly. you know release both themselves and others so yeah 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 well um i think it's not a a high high note um to end We're with sorry. but uh, no not at all but i think it's a, an important thing to address when it comes to well-being and i'm glad you have brought this up today because we haven't talked about it before on this show um so thank you for relating um your open mic with well-being and i think that's that's a beautiful thing um even though it's not uh, the happiest of thing to talk about but i think it's important that we talk about it so thank you for thank being you. here and talk about everything that we've talked about all the tough topics and i just love that you're able to talk about all these tough topics you're an em- empowering woman for us and um i hope our audience enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as i enjoyed learning from you well i enjoyed it too thank you for the honor of being here you've been listening to doing well the well-being science insights podcast produced by the well-being science labs a division of lmsl the life management science labs More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at we.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Lu Ngo. Thanks for tuning in.